Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Karibu Honig, chairman and co-founder of InsureTech Connect, as well as co-founder of the HR Transform Conference, focused on the impact of technology on the workplace. Caribou is a legendary venture capital investor and sits on the board of several startups. He started his career at Capital One Bank and then went on to co-found QED Investors, one of the top fintech venture capital firms focused on data-driven companies. He is currently a partner at Semperverance, a VC focused on future of work. Now let's listen to an enlightening and educating conversation with Karibu Honig. All right. Well, Karibu, thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. We are extremely excited to have you here with us. Uh, we are looking forward to learning from your experience in the industry. But can we start by hearing a little bit about yourself and your personal background? Well, of course. And thanks so much for having me here. It's really, uh, really my pleasure here today. Uh, my background, I started off my career a couple of decades ago, going to work for Capital One. Really, I like to so say that's where I cut my teeth on how to use data in a business strategy. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate to be there really during a period of hyper growth. When I started, there were maybe 1,200 employees. And when I left, there were about 20,000. So I really got to experience that sort of at scale hyper growth from within. I did a variety of roles there, some operations, some credit, a lot of data-driven marketing, which once upon a time was one of my professional passions. I left in 2006, took a year off, watched Netflix, played with my kids, listened to the universe. Point of vanity from that era is that if you Google stupid career decision, I am the number one organic result. Um, I sort of retelling a story about how I left Capital One, but uh, took that time off. And then uh, the universe spoke to me reconnected with a couple of other former Capital One executives, Frank Rotman, who I think you've had on the podcast, and Nigel Morris. And together we created a boutique venture capital firm, QED Investors, really trying to take some of the lessons learned and battle scars and all from our time at Capital One to help another generation of entrepreneurs. Uh, did that for a number of years. 2015 started to turn my attention to the insure tech sector as an investment area looking for a good industry conference that would bring together the entrepreneurs and the investors and the industry executives, something like Money 2020 for insurance. Could not find anything worth going to and had the harebrained idea. I kind of needed it to exist, so maybe I should just create it. Luckily for me, got connected with a guy who knows how to create conferences, a guy named Jay Weintraub, and we created InsureTech Connect, which became the largest InsureTech conference of its kind, Reminded me how much I love the harebrained notion pursuing those and that I've got a few itches I want to still scratch. So I left QED in 2017 to do my third act, which is sort of where I stand now, a mix of helping to grow a couple of conferences, bringing people together, starting as a uh, sort of independent director on a few insure tech startups. And uh, then most recently, helping another uh, boutique venture capital firm, uh, very different from QED in some ways, very similar in others, to get off the ground. So besides that, I basically make a nuisance of myself. That's my main job. Well, fantastic. Karibu, I'm sure it's going to be no surprise to tell you that Capital One keeps coming up over and over again as an inspiration for a lot of the people that we bring on the podcast. And I'm talking about some of the largest neobanks in the world, some of the largest fintechs in the world. 
Tell us a little bit about your experience at Capital One and about the kind of culture that you encountered when you first joined and, and about the growth that you also experienced. It's Capital funny, One. you know, people talk about the PayPal mafia, and I think that it would be a really interesting study for someone to take a look at what I would call the Capital One diaspora. Because if you've seen the various people going from there, whether into, you know, other incumbents and taking major roles there, driving strategy, or playing important roles on the entrepreneurship side and in, uh, in various startups, I think it would be quite the impressive thing. I think it starts with the culture. Rich Fairbank and Nigel Morris created a culture there that was fundamentally you know, respectful of conventional wisdom and yet also questioning conventional wisdom. It was a, a company where a guy like me who you know, had an undergraduate degree in physics and had some, some graduate training in, in law and business, but didn't really know any real you know, business day-to-day, could get more responsibility than most other places on the basis of not what I knew, but my ability, I like to think, to like learn and question assumptions and not try to impose my beliefs about the world, but to say, here's a competing hypothesis, let's go test it. And, you know, there are some industries where that's not all that important. We always used to say, like, if you're building ships, I'm not sure you want to just, like, build a different ship and test it by putting it in the water. Probably not the right way to build a ship. But if you're in most financial services, right, particularly those where you're talking to lots of customers and some degrees of sort of variety in how you can configure the product, it's actually really, really powerful and, you know, in a sense, thus Capital One. And I, I think Capital One helped transform an an industry there. So I think you're seeing that kind of manifest when I look at the capital and diaspora, whether it's uh, sort of directly the the humans from cap who worked at Capital One going out and injecting the DNA that way, or whether it's the uh, just sort of the case studies and sort of people understanding, oh, how do they do that? Oh, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Let me see how I can sort of take some of that myself. You know, I, I think that's why my old compatriots at QED Right. I think we all sort of brought that as part of our value proposition, right? It's not like we had the, the deepest pockets. We're writing the, the biggest checks. It was more like hmm, some of the things that we had and some of the mistakes we made and how we learned how to overcome. Maybe we can bring that to your business as well from the investor and, and board level. That makes sense. That makes sense. It's uh, that data driven mindset that really makes the difference. So Talking a little bit about your second act, right? So you leave Capital One in in 2006. First of all, why did you decide to leave? And then how did the process of launching QED work out? Yeah, you know, I'm a big believer that don't let inertia drive your personal career. And it's really easy for most people to let inertia be the driver, right? if you are pretty happy and getting pretty well paid, you know, all right, let's, you know, let's see what happens tomorrow. I I like to share with people the framework that like, if you're waking up three days a week, looking forward to going into work and one day a week kind of ambivalent and one day a week maybe dreading it, that's actually a pretty good situation because every really good job actually does have a day that you're going to have to do something you dread. And for much of my career at Capital One, really great place to work for a guy like me, you know, it was at least that ratio often, quite often better. But over time, as the company grew, as it changed strategy a bit here and there, 
as some of my talents became a little less important and some of my deficits became a little bit more important, I started to, I woke up and realized, hmm, I'm looking forward to going into work one day a week. I'm kind of ambivalent two or three and I'm kind of dreading it one or two. And I could actually live with that, but why? Why live with that? So that's where I made the stupid career decision, left the firm, left the company and you know, said, look, I, I live a pretty frugal lifestyle. Let me take the time off, uh, you know, spend that time with kids and catching up on Netflix and, and so on. And then, you know, I didn't have a grand plan, right? But I didn't have a grand plan by design, right? It was by design, I want to let the universe talk to me to see how it unfolds for a little while. My wife was very supportive. She said, that's great, Caribou, but after a year, buddy, you're getting a job. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, luckily around month 11, as I say, reconnected and Nigel and Frank and I, we were sort of all looking, I think, for, for our next act at that point. And, uh, you know, none of us were needing at that point to quit something else in order to work together and see what we might do, which is a great situation, of course, a very fortunate situation. And then it, uh, you know, we started to realize almost on an advisory basis that we could add a lot of value to these, to some kinds of companies, not all. And part of the trick is making sure you recognize who you can't add value to and highlight that. And then we start to say, well, what's the right way to engage with these companies, really? And that's where you start to say, well, maybe you should invest in them, right? That creates a kind of alignment that you can't get if you're just, you know, advising or sitting on a board, perhaps. So we did that. And, uh, you know, we would always be asking each other, you know, as you thought about making a case to invest in a company, right? And you had bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. And then we would ask, did you QED that, right, from the old math proof? kind of QED. After a while, we just started saying, okay, well, that's kind of who we are, right? Trying to systematically understand the risks, understand the upside, and do the homework to prove it in that sort of math proofish kind of way. So that's the genesis of the name itself is just sort of reflecting how we were going about doing this. Was it always your intention at QED to focus specifically on fintech? So it's easy to rewrite history, of course, after it's been done. But the, the real answer is no. The, the answer was, let's cast a fairly wide aperture with a, a foundation around where can our experience and skills be helpful to the entrepreneur. And no surprise, we knew that some parts of fintech, that would be the case. Like that was sort of, if we were gonna be good at anything, it ought to include that. But, you know, my last role at Capital One was to help the company solve originating credit card customers through every channel besides direct mail. Right? I've got this passion for data-driven customer origination marketing strategies. Always have, don't know why, it's kind of weird, but I do. But it meant that uh, as a firm, we had some skills and some knowledge around data-driven marketing. And there's actually a lot going on, especially circa 2008, you know, early 2010s, around data-driven marketing innovation. You know, I think that was one of the categories that we found really interesting. You know, we would also dabble and get smarter, right? So we did a couple insure tech investments along the way. We actually did, our first company to IPO was actually a company helping graduate programs from nonprofit universities go online, right? Because they actually had to do a lot of data-driven marketing to help enroll the students into those programs. Well, that's the kind of skill set we brought to the table. Now, as time went on, we sort of stared at things and we had some nice wins right outside of sort of core banking fintech. But we also said, look, that, that really is the power alley and uh, sort of concentrate firepower for a while. 
Now, you know, I think uh, if you look at what QED is doing today, I'm looking from the outside now, not from the inside. But, you know, I think that they're, it's a big fund. They've been tremendously successful. I mean, I might say, especially after I left the firm. And, uh, you know, I think that with that success, it gives them additional license to once again explore for what other areas writ large, the skill sets that the team there can really help with. QED definitely top of mind for anyone launching a company in fintech or or anyone thinking about the fintech space. So if it was going so well, why did you decide to leave QED as well? Well, did I mention that I don't want to let inertia be the driver of my personal career? And I'll share with you an anecdote. So I still remember this. It's, It's burned into my neurons somehow. I'm sitting down letting my parents know over Skype that For those who are on Zoom who don't know, Skype was like Zoom. I'm old. Um, but So I was sitting down uh, on Skype with my parents, and my dad's sitting down, and my mom is sort of standing next to him just off camera. And I say, yeah, you know, I think I've made the decision. I think it's time for me to move on from QED and, and move on to my third act. And uh, my dad, I see him sort of, you know, on camera, looking off camera up at my mother saying, it seems like Caribou was always quitting his job. <laughs> It's like, all right, this is the second job in 20 years, but okay, I, I, I get where you're coming from. Uh, look, it, it was really, I realized that I had some other itches that I wanted to scratch and sort of, you know, halfway to two thirds of the way through my career. If I was going, I, had, I faced a choice, right? Do I continue doing this thing, which, you know, we've been remarkably successful on, I'm valued on, and, you know, might be continue to be tremendously successful, but means not doing some other things that I sort of have itching to do. And, uh, you know, for me, it was just sort of like, look, I, I've accomplished something both professionally and, you know, for myself personally with QED. And uh, while there's other things I could accomplish there, there's also a whole lot of other things I'd, I'd love to, you know, take my hand at trying to accomplish as well and, and, and see how it helps people. The, uh, you know, uh, in part, it was also um, the having helped create the InsureTech Connect conference As I say, that reminded me that I really do like harebrained ideas. Sometimes they work out, often they don't. But I really like that sort of period of things. And, uh, you know, I also, my old colleagues at QED, they bleed banking. They really do. And, and that's part of, I think, the secret to their success, right? They not only know it, the industry, but they love it. And I think that, that kind of passion, you know, drives results. I like the banking industry. It is one of many industries that I personally like. You know, again, for me, the opportunity to try my hand at a few other things, which included, you know, playing around in the insure tech category. I mean, more recently now, I'm, I've gotten over the last two years a lot more involved in future of work, uh, HR tech kind of categories. You know, I think that's a little better fit for me and how I can contribute to the universe. So I think it's interesting that you you've really covered all verticals within fintech, at least from... QED, but you have decided to mostly focus on InsureTech. Why is that? And, and tell us about your vision for InsureTech and then your analysis of what's going on today. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I think it starts with, if you can, you want to be in a pretty good industry. You want to be in a good setup. Because even if you're brilliant, which I'm not, but if you were, if I were brilliant, right, it'd still be helpful to be in a place with tailwinds. And I try to sort of map the insurance category against other parts of financial services. And, and look, I think that when you 
look over the arc of the last couple decades, category of fintech, which has consistently created many billions of dollars of market cap and underlying real value has been payments. You know, you sort of look at the, the granddaddy of it with, with uh, you know, PayPal, but you look at companies like Stripe and Plaid and folks like that. I think that the, you know, the history of digital lending, whether you digital lending, marketplace lending, P2P lending, whatever, is yet to be fully written. But I think the writing is mostly on the wall that it's a, a pretty tough sector to create sustainable franchise, sustainable billions of dollars of market cap. Uh, you know, and certainly uh, most of the public market outcomes there have been disappointing to folks. You know, other areas like, you know, at least some of the, you know, call it consumer facing wealth management, right? Again, I think it's just the history books will eventually be written, but just tough to sort of build the kind of business that you want to and so on. I think InsureTech sort of fits in between there. You know, I think it's not as easy to build those enduring multi-billion dollar franchises as in payments, you know, writ large. But I, I quite frankly would rather be investing or building a, a startup in insurance and insure tech than in digital lending or wealth management. So it sort of starts with that. And then, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, the old mind the gap, like the insure tech sector, uh, particularly when I started to, you know, try to really devote more of my time to it, uh, circa 2015, there weren't that, it was, it was barely a thing, right? If you do the, you know, Google trends, looking at the search terms for it, 2015, it was just starting to be a, uh, a thing that people would even search for as a category. Is it FinTech? Is it not FinTech? Is there an E in there? Is there not an E in there when you spell it? All, all sorts of those sort of early growing pains. So there is certainly the, the opportunity just to get in a little bit early on the ground floor of being involved in whole movement there around it. And, uh, you know, there, there were other folks with more experience in insurance as an industry than myself out there, but not that many. And, you know, as a fintech guy, I sure as heck didn't know all the answers, right? But the one thing that I did benefit from, if you're in fintech as an investor or an entrepreneur for that matter, um, you don't know all the questions, but you most, most of the, uh, sorry, you don't know the answers, but most of the questions are the same. You know, being a fintech investor, you sort of know you got to sort of jump quickly to the regulatory questions, quickly to the unit economics of the originations. You got to figure out what your supply chain looks like for it, working who you're going to work with to really affect that. As I say, the questions are largely the same, even if the answers are different, as opposed to, look, I may have been a brilliant social media investor, but that doesn't mean that I'm actually naturally equipped with the right questions in my pocket to ask uh, an insure tech startup. Fascinating. That makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting to see how the insure tech wave of innovation is playing out, not just in the US, but around the world. Do you follow the trends uh, internationally? I, I certainly try to. Insurance is a global business by nature, partly because it, it's actually beneficial for their business model that creates natural diversification. But, uh, you know, I think also just fundamentally the, the skills of it are sort of spanning borders. The, um, and so I think that the fact that the industry is so international lends itself to not the startups being international on day one, certainly, but to there being startups all around the globe on day one. You know, I think there are really interesting startups 
on par, if not more so than in the US all around, whether it's in Europe, you know, there's a company that I've followed for years and, and you know, continue to find fascinating called Hellas Direct. I think that, you know, obviously Asia has, uh, and China in particular, has demonstrated all sorts of interesting things going on there in InsureTech. I actually spend a bit of time in uh, Latin America, Brazil in particular. And, you know, I think while I don't think that folks there would assert that they're on the leading edge, the way, you know, Nubank actually is probably in truly the leading neobank in the world. I don't think that there is yet a new bank of insurance, so to speak, in Latin America, uh, but there's definitely efforts and innovation going on there as well. So I really think it's become a global phenomenon. You know, part of uh, part of our insure tech conference we do this year, normally it's in Vegas. This year, it's not exactly in Vegas. It's sort of everywhere. But, you know, in the month of September, uh, we have like InsureTech Connect Global, InsureTech Connect World Tour. And it's not an accident because the very nature of like what we're doing, bringing people together is global. Some of the best sort of exchanges of ideas actually happen when it's people cross border, because that's how people have sort of different experiences, different perspective. And if they can exchange, well, what worked for you? What worked for me? I think ends up being very fruitful. And are there any particular areas within InsureTech that you are most excited about? Yeah. You know, I, I think there's a few trends that are certainly things I would point to there. So, you know, for a couple of years now, I've been obsessed about the APIification of the insurance stack, right? And, you know, it's kind of funny, like a couple of years ago, at least, there were thousands of APIs serving the banking world, right? whether from the banks themselves or from vendors uh, the supply chain. In insurance, that's just beginning to happen. Certainly two years ago, it was probably measured in the dozens. Now, maybe there's a couple hundred, although if you press me to find them, I don't know that I could. And as you API-ify the stack, that in turn opens up some other possibilities. So, you know, I, I think that the notion of embedded insurance, right? I probably pressed my luck by asking, you know, can it go from being embedded to even just being invisible insurance in some manner of speaking? But, you know, I think that is enabled by APIs. And I think that ends up being actually a really important sort of go-to market. And look, if you're an incumbent, you have lots of ways of going to market. Embedding your product is one. Allianz has been really good at, at that with things like travel insurance and tuition insurance. But if you're a startup, you don't have lots of options about how to distribute your product. And so I think that you know, the notion of embedded insurance becoming more and more feasible is actually really a good trend for the startups as well. You know, there's been... Uh, lots of innovation around small business commercial insurance. I think that'll probably continue. Uh, I would look for that. You know, I think life insurance, you're sort of just starting to see some of the innovations, particularly around product, hitting the market now. It's sort of like people will say the insurance industry is about five to eight years behind the banks in terms of technology and innovation. My sense is that most insurance executives would agree with that. They wouldn't take insult from that. And I think that the uh, the life insurance folks are probably on average about two years behind the PNC side. Uh, but that means we're starting to see the innovations come out there as well. So I do um, kind of like, you know, watching that piece of it too. Yeah, on, on life insurance, we had recently uh, Melbourne O'Banion from Bistow and, and they're doing some interesting things on life insurance. So there is this concept uh, this evolution of fintech, right, where every company in, in many industries has the potential to become themselves a financial service company. 
Do you see the same happening in, in InsurTech? I think this is kind of what you're alluding to with embedded insurance companies like Tesla launching their own insurance product. Do you think we're going to see more of that? So, you know, I thought you were going in a different direction with this question. So I may have to answer both what you asked and what I thought you were going to ask me. First of all, on this question of like the Teslas of the world. And the answer is, yeah, I think it's almost sure to happen. And that's almost where I start to think of it as being invisible, right? It's just part of the product. It's not even the embedding the offer in there. And, and you know, I think that the, you look at the tech titans and it's sort of, you know, very US centric to talk about Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook. But then, you know, really when you open the aperture and look globally, you know, I think it gets a lot easier actually to see tech titans eyeing this area. So, you know, I would pretty clearly Tencent, right, and Alibaba have some serious moves in this space. You know, I would think folks like Naspers would be ones to watch. You know, I also think that the the sort of fintech titans are another category there, right? So, you know, Credit Karma, talked, uh, I want to say a year and a half ago about their sort of one click by which people can see the different auto insurance quotes available to them. Because if you've already provided information about your cars and where they're garaged and Credit Karma has ways to like check with DMV on and pre-fill it for you and they know your credit and they know all sorts of other information about you. Well, now that just sort of makes it really easy for Karma to start also giving you the consumer a better experience in finding the right insurance. Would it surprise me if some of the the challenger banks uh, start to really eye insurance products, even if it's just brokering them as a really sort of adjacent way to sort of monetize their customer franchise, Uh, particularly the neobanks who are, you know, giving their core product away for free. Indeed, they probably have a little bit more urgency to find other products. And, you know, if they can find a great product and deliver a great experience on the serving and solving the insurance needs, and that's great too. What I thought you were going to ask me is like, you know, the sort of movement of the startups to themselves become financial services providers, right? To actually become the insurers. And the answer to that is, yeah, there's clearly a trend, actually much more than very few, certainly in the US, very few of the challenger banks are banks. They're not. They're an important part of the tech stack connecting into a uh, you know forward thinking but real legacy banks and you know i think that's there's a variety of reasons why that may be the case but in insuretech really been a trend towards companies startups beginning as an agent or more likely an mga proving some product market fit and then vertically integrating and actually becoming a carrier whether you know, by acquisition of a shell or actually going through the hard work of lighting it up themselves. I think that's one of the more important trends in InsureTech as well. Fascinating. So, Caribou, talking a little bit about your third act, you recently joined uh, Semperverance, a venture capital firm that you've, you've just mentioned that in many ways is similar to QD, but in other ways it's not. Can you tell us a bit more about the fund? Yeah. So, you know, when I left QED three years ago, gosh, I, I really did not only didn't anticipate joining another VC fund, I was, I was somewhat averse to the idea. Like, what's the point of that? But one of the conferences that I helped work to build is a conference called HR Transform, focused on impact of tech on the workplace. Got to know a couple guys who were building a, launching a new VC fund, focused on future work, really any, any investing in any startup that's selling either to or through the employer channel. 
And that was sort of interesting, I thought. And I, I sort of double clicked there. And it, it turns out it's, it's kind of an ecosystem that they were building, an ecosystem fund, because they also already had a kind of HR tech accelerator program in place called People Tech Partners. They already had a uh, super interesting benefits consulting firm called Sequoia, uh, not Sequoia Capital, but just Sequoia. And you know that gave them insight into what leading edge employers need in terms of their HR tools and sort of ancillary benefits and things like that. And just the mindset that an employer brings when dealing with their talent pool. And that reminded me, by the way, of QED in the sense of it was sort of such extraordinarily deep knowledge and insight about the category in which they were looking to invest. On top of that, actually, just the, you know, as a firm doesn't lead deals, right? Take, doesn't take a board seat, writes relatively modest checks. All of these things were, were pretty reminiscent of the early days of QED for me. So I liked that because I, I saw how that could play out pretty nicely. So they asked me to become a special advisor, actually, and join their investment committee. And, you know, it's sort of a way for me to learn and add some value to, to some folks at the same time. So I did. And then as they moved over from fund one to fund two, we had the conversation and ended up with my joining as uh, at least a part-time partner in the fund, sort of elevating my role a bit. The, um, and I, I find it very satisfying, again, sort of helping, helping the creation and the launch and the growth of a fund itself, I enjoy helping to see what they're doing for the entrepreneurs and doing my little part to be part of that and seeing just how they're doing it. And selfishly, I get to learn another category, another part of the business world that I really didn't know that much about. And I, I still don't know that much, but I'm a little bit smarter than I was two years ago. And I hope to be a little bit more smarter two years from now. So having worked with multiple entrepreneurs and then multiple startups, are there any commonalities, common traits that you find amongst the companies that you support? Yeah, look, I, I think there's two things I'd highlight. One is that great entrepreneurs have this amazing ability to simultaneously hold a long-term, very ambitious vision in their mind and communicate it to their team and all, and simultaneously to be able to break it down into the series of sort of milestones and steps and plateaus that need to, to be achieved between here and there. And, and that can be a 10 or 20 year vision, by the way. So it's, it could be a lot of steps and plateaus and organize their teams to actually take that next step while not doing things to hinder the long-term vision. You have visionaries who can't operationalize what it takes. And you've got great operators sometimes who if you tell them what they need to accomplish in the next 12 months, bam, it's done. But quite rare is to have excellence at both of those at the same time. The other trait, and I'll actually point to my co-founder of the conferences, uh, Jay Weintraub, whom I, I love dearly, is the degree of being obsessive. I think every great founder CEO is obsessive about something. And often, not always, but, but I'd say in a majority of the time, particularly for tech-related companies, it's about product. They will obsess about product. I've seen Jay obsess about these sort of nuances of what the, of how the conference attendee is going to experience some little portion of the conference. For us, that's product. And he is, it's a mostly healthy obsession. <laughs> I, you know, I'll, I'll caveat with mostly. 
but you, you look at great companies and there's usually something that the CEO is obsessed about on a systematic basis because that obsession actually helps elevate what the company can accomplish to a level that doesn't get accomplished without obsessing. And what about on, on the other side? What is the added value that you aim and you hope to provide to the companies that you support? Yeah, that, that's a that's a tough question to answer because it's hard to sound humble. <laughs> you know, look, I, I um, I'll start with I'm on a couple insurtech startups as an independent board director, so that that really puts the litmus test there because it's not about a check I'm writing. If they want me, it's got to actually be about my mind, not my body. And, you know, what I always tell folks in those kinds of conversations is when you're either recruiting an independent board member or where you're taking on a board member because they're writing you a check, the first thing you've got to be really comfortable with is their business judgment. So I like to think that I bring some decent business judgment to the table. I'm most certainly not always right in my judgments, but if I can at least articulate a point of view informed by a combination of experience and insights of the past, then that's good. I, you know, my joke about with the, the Semperverance guys, especially in the, the first couple of years, is my primary role, especially since I didn't really know much about the sector, my primary role is to help make sure they don't make the same boneheaded investment mistakes that I made in my past. If I can just do that and we can make our own novel boneheaded mistakes, well, that, that's actually puts us way ahead of the game for a first fund. You know, I think that then you go beyond the sort of business judgment and sort of specific battle scars. And, and you do start to get to questions around industry-specific knowledge, whether it's, hey, I happen to know someone who might be helpful for you as you're navigating that, you know, introductions, uh, warm sort of entrees when for a B2B company that's trying to, you know, make a few sales. Actually, Semperverance, I think, because we've got this ecosystem that we built around us, it's easy for us to pitch, you know, look, we'll help you get some clients early on in your history, which can make a real difference. And I think that's true. But I think that What's a little harder to sort of really tightly grasp your hands around, but I think is more important, is I think that the, the fund is able to help the entrepreneur navigate that employer channel, you know, fine tune their pitch, refine what the product is and pricing models and things like that and anticipate objections. It's sort of the difference between teach a man to fish versus giving them a fish. I think that giving a few fish is sort of almost expected among uh, for, for investors. And, you know, I think the, the question is, you know, looking for, if you're a, an entrepreneur, you want to find people around you that can actually help teach you how to fish at crucial parts of what you're trying to accomplish. And not every investor is about that. That's not their point or why they exist. But, you know, this is where both QED and Semperverance, again, are sort of, I find that uncanny resemblance around, you know, I think at QED, there were a number of dimensions on which we tried to offer to, to help the startups learn to fish on certain parts of what they were trying to do. And I think that's the same here at Semperverance. And speaking of the companies and entrepreneurs you work with, how has this crisis affected? Obviously, we're close to the sixth month of the COVID-19 crisis. And, you know, curious to hear some of the stories of how your founders adapted. It's so interesting. It is a tremendous headwind to some. If your business model is selling to employees through the employer in the employer's actual workplace, right? So if you're trying to sell something where like, we'll go in person to your offices, right? Because that'll be more convenient for your employees to get XYZ. 
Well, that's pretty tough right now. <laughs> like roughly impossible. That doesn't mean that it's long-term, not a great idea, but short-term, that's really tough. There are other kinds of products and offerings where, you know, sort of fortunately and unfortunately, this is, it's actually a great tailwind. So think about a company that helps deliver mental health benefits, right, for employees. Well, that's something which is inherently pretty easy to deliver remotely. And, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear to folks that employees are suffering a lot of stress whether in connection where they're working from home or just because of life in a very, very stressful time period. So there's some companies that are actually experiencing great increases in demand for what they're doing. A, a number of the investments in by Semperverance are actually in the, the sort of health tech uh, world. And a, much of that has been sort of at least, if not sort of entirely, at least tangentially related to telemedicine. And I think that's interesting. I've just been noodling lately about a thesis that COVID is actually a platform shift, just like the PC, the internet, and mobile. You know, sort of once in a decade, you get a platform shift and everyone, you know, was saying, oh, we're a little overdue for one. You know, mobile is like 12 years old now for the iPhone. Is it going to be, you know, virtual reality? Is it going to be what AI? What's going to be? No, actually the platform shift is COVID. And that manifests as a whole bunch of legacy assumptions are moot and a whole bunch of legacy ways of getting things done are moot. But it also means in a kind of tectonic shift way that there's an entire whole new companies and whole new industries, arguably, are, are about to emerge. And you can, you can almost, you can start to spot them if you look. You know, it, it's sort of telemedicine is one of the clear ones, right? It was on a, you know, crawl along basis, right? Before this, with a lot of resistance from a lot of stakeholders. And I think it's almost a foregone conclusion now that it's mainstream and is likely to remain mainstream for, you know, some fraction of medical, you know, care delivery. That's great, by the way. Ghost kitchens are another one, right? Maybe not as sort of inexorable, but I, I think it's going to show that way. Like a lot of restaurants have turned into ghost kitchens with empty seating areas. And I think that you're going to see some of them say, you know what, this ghost kitchen thing can actually work for us, maybe better than a traditional restaurant. And there's a lot more consumer acceptance right, of the, you know, I'll just order the delivery of the meal instead of going out. Like, I think you would start to see whole new, what I think is really interesting to see whole new categories like those being built on the COVID platform, you know, so to speak. And, uh, you know, then what, what can you do for that? Like, if I'm an insurtech startup, maybe I should go build a bespoke product for ghost kitchens, right, as a commercial insurance product. Like, that's interesting. Yeah, no, fascinating. Uh, every restaurant turned into a ghost kitchen at some point. So, Garibo, before we go, we always love to ask about some of your time outside of work. Uh, maybe you could tell us about some of your hobbies and how yeah. you spend uh, some of that time outside of the office or uh, you know, outside of work hours because there's no office these days. <laughs> yeah, happy to. So, um, you know, it's summertime and I have a small place not too far off from the Chesapeake Bay. I, I live in Richmond, Virginia, so it's about a two-hour drive there. And uh, there's about eight weeks during the summer where uh, blue crabs are swimming around the Chesapeake Bay. And I find some sort of weird, irrational joy in um, going out there, catching the crabs. Uh, there's a whole technique. You 
put a drum chicken drumstick on a you know eight foot rope, tie that to a PVC pipe, put that in the in the sand, and uh, you know wait for the, the the rope to get taut. It's a lot of fun, sort of mildly pointless. It's been a pretty good summer actually for catching crabs, and I think I've probably pulled out a hundred. And it's the the, the real uh, pain is. You know, then cooking them and picking the meat off of them, which is, uh, it's just not worth it, except that they're delicious. And I, I, I kind of have to do it if I've just caught these crabs. So that's one of my main summer hobbies. And, uh, you know, then, then the other, I, I'd say anyone who does a um, Zoom uh, video call with me will find out that I'm in the habit of basically capturing my own Zoom backgrounds. And so uh, I've got a, a decent drone uh, that I've been using to actually get some pretty good ones. I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. So I think that flying my drone around uh, is another one. After hearing about those crabs, I'm, I'm now hungry. I confess, it sounds delicious. Well, Garibo, thank you for joining us again. And, you know, it's really been a treat having you on the show. Uh, I've learned a ton. I'm sure our audience will also learn a ton. And, you know, we, uh, if things go back to normal or in person, we would love to see you around campus as well. Well, thanks. I, I look forward to it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.